As the Cambridge Analytica scandal continues to unfold, Congress seeks answers from Facebook. And is it possible to build a secure digital wallet for storing cryptocurrency? These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Numerous U.S. lawmakers have called on Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg to testify about how a London-based firm called Cambridge Analytica was able to collect private data concerning tens of millions of Facebook users. Cambridge Analytica sells the ability to change audience behavior to businesses and political parties and has counted among its customers the Trump campaign. ISMG's executive editor Jeremy Kirk has more. We really messed this one up. That was Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg in 2006. He was addressing concerns that the social networking company bungled privacy controls when it launched its news feed. Twelve years later, Zuckerberg could arguably have written the same line again. The uproar continues over the acquisition of up to 60 million Facebook profiles by voter profiling firm Cambridge Analytica. On Wednesday, Zuckerberg broke five days of silence as pressure intensified on Facebook. In a lengthy blog post, Zuckerberg pledged to make changes to better protect personal data and new restrictions on access to that data. He also granted an on-air interview with CNN. This was a major breach of trust, and, and I'm really sorry that this happened. Uh, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data, and if we can't do that, then, then we don't uh, deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. Although Facebook has endured privacy controversies before, this one appears to have taken a particularly bitter turn. That's because Cambridge Analytica was hired by the Trump campaign in 2016. Cambridge Analytica obtained the data from a Cambridge University psychologist who created a personality survey app deployed to the site in 2014. The app collected data on 270,000 people who used it, but also those people's friends, which numbered up to 60 million. Privacy activists have justifiably been honking their horns for years over Facebook's ever-changing privacy settings, and also whether it was transparent in communicating to users what data its platform shared. Also of concern was the liberal access is granted to outside app developers via its API. But the Cambridge Analytica situation shows the company's fundamental and avoidable error. It trusted app developers not to misuse data, but without any means of enforcing those assurances. Once Facebook allows access to personal data, as with any leak or data breach, there's no way to reel it back. The data that app developers had access to is what's made Facebook such a power in the digital advertising business. Without Facebook's intimate knowledge of its users, micro-targeting of people becomes less effective and thus less profitable for Facebook. There's also potential long-term damage to users. Personally identifiable information doesn't change. Even preferences from political views to music to views on social issues are generally static. What leaked as a result of the psychologist's app, and perhaps many other apps under examination now by Facebook, could float around for years providing detailed insight into people. Deleting a Facebook account stops future data collection and future micro-targeting, at least on the social network, but apologies and policy tweaks can't fix the past. Zuckerberg has really messed up another one. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Christopher Wiley is a former worker at Cambridge Analytica, now turned self-described whistleblower. He told the Observer newspaper, which helped break this story, that the work the firm did was, at least in hindsight, wrong. It was a gross, grossly unethical experiment because you are playing with an entire country 
the psychology of an entire country without their consent or awareness. And not only are you like playing with the psychology of, of an entire nation, you're playing with the psychology of an entire nation in the context of the dem democratic process. Facebook has been called to account for its actions, and the company briefed congressional staff this week. But it seems certain that top Facebook officials will soon be appearing before Congress to testify. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut tells MSNBC that he wants to hear from Facebook how it will be more transparent with consumers. I want to know what they are going to do to make sure that consumers know what information is shared with third parties and that they be given the right to consent to it, not just opt out, but opt in with full knowledge. And I think Mark Zuckerberg has to come before the Commerce Committee, where I sit, or the Judiciary Committee, where I'm also a member, and explain how Cambridge Analytica was permitted to retain this information. Facebook did nothing to verify that it had deleted this information, and still, incredibly, Facebook has failed to notify all of the users and consumers about what private personal information has been shared and is out there right now. Senator Blumenthal also responded to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's caveated statement this week that he's happy to testify before Congress if he's the right person. In answer to Mr. Zuckerberg, you are the right person. You should come before the committee. There's no question about it. We hope you do it voluntarily. But I think there has to be a subpoena for all of the documents that are relevant because there's no assurance that all of those documents will be provided unless there is compulsory process. It's standard operating procedure. It ought to apply to Mark Zuckerberg and the tech world. He's not above the law. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Will the 2018 U.S. midterm elections be secure against hack attacks that might attempt to crash election systems, delete registered voters, or even alter their votes? That was the focus of a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing this week, focused on election cybersecurity and how much more needs to be done, not least to combat the type of foreign interference that was seen in the 2016 elections and which U.S. national security chiefs have unanimously warned Congress is continuing unchecked today. Republican Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, the committee's chair, says DHS has made great strides when it comes to assisting states and understanding how they operate. But there's more to do. There's a long wait time for DHS premier services. States are still not getting all the information they feel they need to secure their systems. The department's ability to collect all the information needed to fully understand a problem is an open question. And attributing cyber attacks quickly and authoritatively is a continuing challenge. Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, the committee's vice chair, says much more needs to be done and done more quickly. The threat is real and the need to act is urgent. We need the administration to accelerate its efforts. Perhaps most of all, we need a president who will acknowledge the gravity of this threat and lead a whole of society effort to harden our defenses and inoculate our society against Russia's malicious interference. The fact that the president did not even bring up the topic of our election security when he called Vladimir Putin to congratulate him on his victory in a pre-cooked election, I believe is extremely troubling. The good news is this problem is not a Democratic or Republican one. 
Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen told the committee that while elections are the responsibility of state and local officials, DHS continues to assist them, in part by offering vulnerability scans that half of states now use, as well as more in-depth on-site risk assessments, including penetration testing. Here's Nielsen. To be clear, there has been a learning curve on the sharing of information. The election systems in states are often owned and operated by different systems. The Secretary of State, the state CIO, in some cases the state CISO, the governor's office, or even counties. While appropriate technical uh, information and notifications were shared with system owners, uh, we have taken steps to share information much more broadly and rapidly. Beyond sharing information, we also share best practices for risk management, such as paper ballot backups and risk-limiting audits. The ultimate goal, of course, is enhancing network protection, but we must be prepared for any eventuality, including unauthorized access to systems. But senators continued to press Nielsen about why more hadn't yet been done and whether the Trump administration was taking this problem seriously enough. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, for one, said she detected a lack of urgency. At this point, we know for certain that the Russians were relentless in their efforts and also that those efforts are ongoing. And yet, when I listen to your testimony, I hear no sense of urgency to really get on top of this issue. When we held our last hearing in June, I was dismayed to learn that not a single chief state election official had received a security clearance. What specifically is DHS doing uh, to accommodate what you said was sponsoring three officials per state for clearances? That's 150 officials. How many have actually received the clearances? Uh, we have about 20 uh, that have received the full clearance. We're granting interim secret clearances as, as quickly as we can. 20 out of 150? Yes, ma'am. But the good news, again, is if we have something to share, we will share that day. That with or without a clearance, we'll read them in and share it. We turn now to cryptocurrency wallets. In other words, where to store your Bitcoin, Ether, or whatever other cryptocurrency you happen to have. Can you store it securely? Joining me to discuss is my colleague, Nick Holland, ISMG's new Director of Banking and Payments. Hi, Nick. What exactly is a cryptocurrency wallet? It's basically what it says on the box. It, it's a it's a wallet for storing cryptocurrency. So that is any currency that is not a fiat currency. So it's not is not necessarily government issued. And at this point, it tends to be sort of one of a handful of the, the most popular currencies. So it's probably Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ether, potentially Ripple. It's a way of safely storing either in a cloud based environment or on a physical device the currency that you've purchased. And then what would be the difference between a custodial and a non-custodial wallet? The difference is that a custodial wallet is one where the custody of the encryption keys and, and everything is stored in a cloud-based receptacle, which is good in some ways because it's out of your hands, but it's bad in that if there is a breach, then effectively the entire wallet can be cleaned out. And we've seen that with some fairly egregious collapses of wallets in the past. You've also got, um, on the flip side, you have non-custodial where everything's stored on a mobile device and you, you're carrying your savings with you, all your crypto at 
any given time. So again, that is uh, susceptible to clearly fraud if, if someone manages to intercept your credentials and then get in there. I was recently discussing this topic with Al Pascal, who's the senior vice president of research at Javelin Strategy. He's done some research on this recently, and, and he had quite a bit to say about the topic. When you start talking about what potential fraud looks like with some of these, and you think about those custodial wallets, they're very much like a bank account. So all of the schemes that work well with bank accounts work generally with these custodial wallets as well. And so, you know, the, these criminals have gotten really good. They cut their teeth on the banks. And obviously, a lot of banks have very, very good security. So with some of these wallets, their security isn't at the same level. And it's pretty easy for them to manipulate users, to potentially you know, socially engineer, to glean credentials and access accounts and and all the rest. And you know, we see that happen. Whereas with the non-custodial wallets, the biggest security vulnerability there is that it's kind of like carrying a briefcase full of money. There's a reason why we don't all carry our life savings with us. There's some good examples over the last year of people being held up and having their, in essence, their wallets taken from them. And now these are hardware wallets, which are a little different than what we looked at. So these are like standalone devices. But regardless, with these non-custodial wallets, you can be forced, like, you know, if you're at an ATM and someone points a gun at you and says, take money out of your account, you could be forced to you know, actually go into your wallet, move money. It, it's dangerous in a way, but some people like that because it's not a single point of failure. You're the one responsible for protecting your wallet as opposed to Coinbase, for example. So if I'm a hacker, I'm looking for payday. Is it going to be easier for me to knock over a bank, do you think, or a cryptocurrency wallet? That's actually a very good question. I mean, again, as per the conversation with Al, there's a lot of similarities between the two. In some of the crypto wallets, you're starting to see more robust two-factor authentication. But it's worth bearing in mind that it's early days yet for crypto wallets. A lot of the battle testing you've seen with uh, digital bank accounts, they haven't gone through that yet. So there may be sort of a dangerous naivety to some of these companies. I think we've seen that certainly with some of the cryptocurrency exchanges that have gone out of business or been severely impacted after suffering a hack. If you had to categorize the level of information security, awareness, preparedness, maturity, is it markedly lower, do you think, in the cryptocurrency realm than we've come to expect in the old school, if you will, payments space involving your banks and your fiat currencies? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly lower and there's certainly been historically a sort of criminal association with cryptocurrencies. It's certainly not mainstream, but I'll say that the providers of crypto wallets are working very hard to potentially overcompensate for that perception and make these both in reality and perceptually to be more robust than probably any existing solutions out there. Nick, thanks very much for your time and insights today. You're very welcome. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Catch you next time. Thank you.